Hello and welcome to Crossing Channels. I'm Rory Kettlin-Jones. Are countries becoming harder to govern? And if so, what should we do about it? That's the subject of the latest in our podcast collaboration between Cambridge University's Bennett Institute for Public Policy and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. And as ever, we're going to use the interdisciplinary strengths of both institutions to explore a complex challenge. Why has governing France and the UK from the centre become so difficult? What has been the impact of recent political protests and movements? And is devolution the answer to the French and British governability challenge? To explore these issues today, we have Mathieu Carpentier from the IAST. Mathieu, start us off. What does your research focus on? My name is Mathieu Carpentier. I'm a professor of public law at the University of Toulouse in France. I work mainly uh, on uh, constitutional law and comparative constitutional law specifically and uh, constitutional theory. And nowadays, my research focuses on the status of counter-majoritarian institutions in contemporary democracies. Great. Thank you, Mathieu. Uh, from the Bennett Institute, we have Mike Kenny and Louis Bactash. Mike, remind us of your main research interests. Thanks, Rory. Well, I'm very interested in the story of devolution in the UK. Um, and I suppose more generally, how questions about the governance and the future of the UK's domestic union have become so contentious and sort of salient in our politics. And I've just been working on this for a while and I've, I've written a book that will be coming out later this year on that issue, which is really trying to understand why these issues have become much more challenging and difficult for British politicians and government. Uh, Louis, what does your research focus on? I'm a PhD student under Mike's supervision at Cambridge and I study regional policy in France and in the United Kingdom. Particularly, I look at recent changes in, re in regional policy in these two countries and how we can explain these changes. And I look a lot at electoral politics and trying to understand how political realignments in the last few years have explained these changes. So that's our panel. Now, first of all, I, I always like to challenge the assumption in the question we are exploring. What is the evidence then that countries, and in particular the UK and France, are actually becoming harder to govern. Mathieu, take it away. When you talk about governability, you talk mainly about two things. First, the acceptability of the reforms that have passed, that have been passed. And that's frankly, I mean, France is, I mean, in this respect to kind of a case in point when you have a huge reform that was part of the president's manifesto when he ran for re-election, which ends up with France being in turmoil, people in the streets and uh, the riots and <laughs> that uh, you all have seen on TV. So obviously the acceptability point, I think, is a real issue because the mere fact that someone has been elected is by no means an indicator that his policies will be actually accepted. The other issue, I think, that is uh, relevant is the fact that the ability to effectively change the country, to put forward a, a, an ambitious agenda of reforms, is hindered by many factors, such as pressure exerted by markets and the economic actors. But in the case of France, I, I think that uh, a particular point should be focused on, which is what one could call the inertia of bureaucracy. The fact that civil servants, well, they pride themselves in 
the fact that they are not politically uh, appointed actually it's more complicated than that but uh, <laughs> but they have a certain apolitical ethos where uh, every political is issue is reframed in terms of a technical one of an of an issue of expertise if you if you like and this is why true change is so hard in France, especially when, you know, when the current ministers, they are not lifelong political elected members of parliament or and so forth. So they don't have the authority to put back the political in the policies they want to enact. Mike Kenny, uh, we've got a, a government here in the UK, which has got a, a very solid majority, one of the biggest majorities of the last uh, few decades. Is there really any evidence that, that the UK is hard to govern at the moment? I think if you look at the last few years, there's, there's quite a bit of evidence that the UK, like many other countries, France included, has suffered a number of shocks. The energy crisis, the cost of living crisis, COVID, the pandemic as well, which have sort of come, originated largely from outside, either in the context of the pandemic or the world economy. And those have made governing even if you've got a majority, very difficult. Obviously, in the UK case, we've also got the more self-inflicted challenge of Brexit, which has, I think, sort of tested our governing institutions and indeed the, the sort of competence of our politicians like no other challenge since perhaps the Second World War. So I think you've got, you've got those kind of, you know, shock moments and events. But I also think there's something else at stake in the governability idea, which is about certain systemic difficulties, just really difficult social problems and policy challenges that lots of democratic states are struggling to get to grips with. So in our context, I suppose the most obvious one is economic growth, trying to, you know, get growth back, but also make it more inclusive, more across the country, but also institutions like the health service, as well as other related social challenges. We, we've just got I think it is a mixture of these sort of unpredictable shocks, as well as a sort of growing sense that there are huge challenges in front of our politicians that they're struggling to grapple with. Now, Louis Baktash, I think you, you see across both countries, don't you, really? What's your take on, on the rise of ungovernability, if I can use such an ugly term? I think that that question can be asked in two different ways. I think Matthew had more of a structural answer, uh, uh, Mike more of a contextual answer. I think if we look at a very short time frame, it is much harder for Macron to, to govern because, well, especially compared to a few years ago where he had a massive majority in parliament, now he's heading a minority government. So clearly for him, it's, it, it's, it's harder to govern. Uh, even with a big majority, he had issues in with um, the acceptability of his reforms. Now it's even harder. In the UK, if I think about May's government a few years ago, I would argue it's a bit more easier to govern now, thanks to the majority of the Conservative Party won at the last general election. I think what's interesting is there are common challenges, and, and, and Mike talked about them. There are also very different issues in France and the UK, and I think it is getting harder to govern these countries, but for, for, for also for different reasons. Let's drill down into one thing that the two countries have in common, which is a very centralised form of government and the deficiencies of that. I mean, I mean, Mike, again, that I suppose has been seen more recently to be a weakness, has it? Well, I mean, uh, uh, this debate about the British governing model and whether too much power is sort of hoarded at the centre, you know, we, we have a, 
a central government that is trying to sort of govern the whole of the country. Um, the, the criticism of that model is again age old and is, has recurred at different points of crisis. Obviously, the situation now is a bit more complicated because we've also got some devolution arrangements, which are fairly substantial in kind in Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland. Much less clear in England what what any what the equivalent to that is, and so power, power in England is still massively concentrated in in, in Whitehall rather it, than the, the the big northern cities, for example. It is indeed, and and you know we've in England there's a very weakened stratum of local government and councils that have had their funding systematically reduced and their functions narrowed. And there's never been, there's been a lot of debate about, well, should we have a sort of tier of devolved government between councils and Whitehall? And over time, last sort of four or five decades, I mean, there's been recurrent attempts to build a layer of city, regional or regional government. And the the success that the government that comes in after that has generally unpicked it and tried to pursue a different model. So we've had lots of chopping and changing in terms of that challenge to build a, a sort of intermediate devolved layer in England, because England is just in a different position to the other parts of the UK, because it's larger, it's more heavily populated, and it has more resources within it, which matter to the British state. Mathieu and Louis, let's look at the, the, the French example. My impression, having lived in France 40 years ago for a, for a year, were, in Paris was all around me were everything that symbolised France, the Grands Écoles, the government, the arts, an extraordinarily centralised country. Is that still the case, Mathieu? And is it seen as a problem? Obviously, things have changed over the last <laughs> 30, 40 years. France, ever since the French Revolution, has a strong tradition of centralization. And this obviously is a feature of our constitutional identity and has been so for quite some time now. But it has been very clear for quite some time too that the centralization of power is not a desirable situation, both for you know, local uh, authorities and centralized power itself. So basically, it's been 40 years that a process of decentralization has been underway. And obviously, it has a lot, a lot of advantages and good things to it. Local authorities have more powers. They are democratically elected. So it gives also the citizens some kind of a close-knit representation, whereas, you know, when you elect someone to go to Paris, I mean, you do not see him or her very often afterwards. Louis, we've seen a graphic example of people who don't think government is working, certainly not for them, over recent years, and particularly over recent weeks in, in France with the, the revolt over pensions. Just Just tell us about that and whether that's any different from protest movements of... 40, 50 years ago. What's different with uh, protests in recent years in France, I think, is um, if we look back at Macron's uh, campaign, he wrote a book in 2016 called The Révolution, supposed to, to revolutionize French politics. And in, in, in that book, Macron laid down a vision of democracy, which would be centered around the relationship between him, the president, and the people directly. And so there was a an opposition in his mind to what we call in French the, the corps intermédiaire, so in the intermediate bodies. 
that is trade unions, that is also to some extent a local government in a way. Uh, and he sort of tried to personify uh, France, French politics. And to some extent, it works. When we look at the Gilets Jaunes, what's really interested in that, interesting in that in, in that protest movement is that it's been organized almost spontaneously. It's been organized outside of trade unions, outside of political parties. But maybe that's what made the Gilets Jaunes particularly dangerous. I think that's what made them worrying for Macron and for French political elites in, in general. When we look at recent events or in the recent weeks, what's interesting compared to the Gilets Jaunes is the lack of violence in the different demonstrations across the country. Uh, actually, because let's, let's be been, clear, to, to British eyes, yeah. uh, protests on the streets in, in France have always had a lot more violence than we're used to. Yeah, probably. But, but it, it's... There's been some uh, uh, material degradation, I was about to say. There have been some uh, some fires in some French cities. But what's interesting is that until Article 49.3 of the Constitution was used to, 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 to force that law through Parliament, protests were relatively peaceful because they were organised by trade unions. The thing is, Macron, by undermining trade unions consistently, by refusing to listen to them, is creating an incentive to act outside of these corps intermediaires, these intermediate bodies. I think that's the main difference in France with protests in recent years, it's, is that undermining of intermediate bodies. And have the various protests over the years, the Gilets Jaunes and right now the, the, uh, the pension protests, have they actually had any impact on public policies? Because certainly seems with the pension changes, that's, that's just forging ahead. Clearly, in, in terms of the pensions reform, that hasn't worked. And the law has been uh, signed by President Macron. So it, it is happening. But the contestations are still happening. So there's still that hope that there might be some pressure on policymakers and the, the law might be either uh, abandoned or, or, or subsequently reformed later. I study regional policy in both countries. And what's interesting is that uh, the Gilets Jaunes have had an effect on Macron's policy. So I was talking about how in Révolution, Macron opposed uh, the corps intermédiaire. He also wrote about the need to rethink French decentralization. So limit the power of the département, eventually uh, getting rid of the département in favor of the regions, merge département with the métropole, with these intermunicipal groupings at a city region level. What's really interesting is that the Gilets Jaunes changed that. Quickly, if we look at, at the origins of the Gilets Jaunes, what started them was an increase on, on, on fuel duty. But actually, if you go a bit back a few months before that, in 2018, you see that what really created some resentment against Macron was the decision to limit the speed of roads on, on secondary roads from 55 to 50 miles an hour, from 90 to 80 kilometers an hour. And that change was uh, picked up by local politicians by the opposition, especially on the centre-right from Les Républicains. So there was an instrumentalization of the centre, the periphery cleavage, what uh, Christophe Guilloui called la France périphérique. It's a term that's contested and it's not, there's a lot of things to criticise in it. But what's really interesting is that that narrative is used to frame a lot of events. And so the Gilets jaunes protests, becoming framed by this idea of France périphérique, force Macron to rethink his policies. And you see, in terms of regional policy, more attention given to, to left-behind areas, as we'd call them in English. But also, Macron has to rethink its political strategy, working more with mayors, with uh, local officials from these traditional local authorities. And that all that rhetoric around limiting the power 
of local officials goes away, forcing Macron to to, to rethink that. Uh, Mike Kenny, we certainly don't have movements on the scale of the Gilets Jaunes in, in, in the UK, but has there been public resistance in a way that has worried the government and changed policy? Of course, the great example is Brexit. I mean, just picking up on um, Louis' interesting account there of the, of the Gilets Jaunes, its origins, I mean, I do think there's, a, there's something here about cars and people's uh, attitudes towards cars and petrol prices and so on that, that you do, we are beginning to see, aren't we, um, coming out in some of these protests emerging around the city-based schemes for restricting traffic and the ideas of a congestion charge here in Cambridge and the protests in Oxford. There's there's something actually that is, isn't just a French thing here. And they turn out to be much more local though, interestingly, don't they? The, the really powerful and you could say the most powerful lobby in the UK is the NIMBY lobby, which is, which is having a huge effect on central government's planning abilities. Yeah, that's a really good example of one of the the, the most systemically difficult issues in um, UK politics, which is around the way in which the planning system works. And, and, you know, obviously a lot of this comes through politics, the unwillingness of politicians to take decisions that might make them unpopular with their with their constituents in areas where these issues arise but but going back to your 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 bigger question there Rory I think Brexit is a is an illustration of where this works very differently in the UK because Brexit is both in a sense a, a very particular example of protest politics but it's also because it's a referendum it's also in internal politics within the system you know because of the result it has to be enacted and also has a very wide range of support both politically and socially so i think we we don't have the gilet jaune but one of the impacts we do have brexit and one of the effects of it is to draw the political elite towards the challenges of left behind places towards the the idea the recognition of the idea that that there are parts of the country that feel pretty deeply neglected by public policy that are not in the sort of small number of cities that have had a fairly stable growth rate that are not in particularly prosperous or productive areas. And I think the this is where there's a really interesting parallel between Britain and France is that Brexit as this shock event has shifted, I think, the tenor and focus of a lot of British policy debate as a consequence. Mathieu, one thing that is different from 50 years ago is the internet and social media. Has has that shifted the balance of power? Has that it was often said to be a democratizing influence, and I think people are questioning that now. But has that in itself made France, for instance, more difficult to govern? Macron got elected in part because he was very social media savvy. But nowadays uh, we can see that, and and that also goes back to what Louis was talking about, uh, uh, going around the intermediary bodies, intermediate bodies, is that the fact that n- uh, nowadays social agitation, one of the main tools it uses is social media. So, for instance, the Gilets Jaunes movement started on Facebook. A- and the same goes with nowadays uh, the, the, the current protests. Everybody's on social media now, and obviously, what could have been confidential or not as uh, uh, widespread as it can be today before, now becomes an affair of state in a few minutes. So whether it's Macron making a blunder 
on uh, during a visit to local government or whether it is a protester saying an inappropriate thing about the president. Social media serves as a kind of echo chamber which can be used uh, both by the executive, both by the government to its own profit, but also by people wishing to uh, contest its authority. So, yes, I would say yes, it has made France harder to govern. Louis, uh, it seems that social media is now a vital tool to get into government, but that once you're in government, it makes it harder to actually do anything. And in particular, and in particular, unpopular things. Governments used to be, pride themselves, certainly at the beginning uh, of, of their administrations, on, on being able to do things that might be unpopular but might be good for the long term. Has it made them more short-termist? I don't know if it has made them a more short-termist. It has allowed people to organise themselves outside of more traditional means. It has allowed politicians to appeal to certain categories of the population, to certain uh, demographics more easily as well. Uh, and I think we saw that not only in electoral campaigns, but we can also see that uh, in the context of recent political events in, in France and the UK, you'd see politicians just taking their phone, tweeting something as a, an immediate reaction to an event without the usual policy process or, or the or usual consultations. There. What's really interesting with social media as well, it has allowed some people, a small number of people, for example, to exert more pressure on politicians. It doesn't mean it's a mass movement. I'm thinking of, of that uh, Sakesh Paris hashtag that was very popular. I think it still is, but it, it was a bigger thing two years ago. And it was a small number of people organized on Twitter, no, not, not politicians, this small group of less than 100 people managed to exert huge public pressure on Anne Hidalgo, on the mayor of Paris, pushing her to react. So I think social media has definitely changed the way people can exert pressure on politicians. Let's move on to what may be the answers to making government better, making it more effective. Mike, in a recent report, you, you analysed the deficiencies in England's administration particularly and make the case for, for devolution why might that be the answer to to governance challenges there's been quite a long sort of standing debate about whether england in particular which is what is the focus of our report needs a system of government that's more flexible perhaps less top down and less less centralized and also one that that gives a bit more voice to um people in the different localities, different local areas in which they live. And um, there are a whole sort of set of different hopes that are attached to that idea of English devolution. Um, how, how realistic some of those are is hard to say. I think one of the drivers of this renewed interest in the idea of devolution has actually been the sort of growing concern in British politics at what's happening to the regional economies. I think the, the, the fact that growth has been so uneven. The London problem, the, the, the fact that London and the southeast are such a huge part and pulling away from the rest of the country. Exactly so, and particularly um, in the wake of the, of the banking financial crisis of 2007 to 8. It's that, it's that period after then when there's such a sort of imbalance in the way in which the economy recovers that I think has really shifted the dial for many politicians. And then on top of that, of course, you have Brexit as well, which I think says it sends a signal to 
politicians that actually, you know, a lot of people are very unhappy about about exactly that kind of question. So I think a lot of the hope that's sort of invested in devolution in England is about the economy and about whether this would give the tools to decision makers nearer to the ground, you know, in, in the different parts of England to actually make the kinds of decisions that would perhaps prioritise things in ways that would ultimately benefit those areas' economies. Now, there's a lot of hope invested in the economic prospects of devolution, and it, and it could well be that that would improve things for some areas. But I think, I think for, at the popular level, the reason why devolution, I suspect, is becoming a more interesting idea, I mean, there isn't wild enthusiasm about it, but I think what might be what putting it, on, it into people's minds is actually the failings of central government. It, it, it could well be that actually if centralisation is not delivering what it says on the tin, then people might be more inclined to think, well, actually, I'd rather vote for Andy Burnham and have him have more powers or Andy Street or, you know, the, the, you can begin to see a sort of logic for devolution in popular politics potentially build up in that kind of way. But I mean, we're a long way from having a citizenry that is that is crying out for radical governance reform. Mathieu, what's the story in France? Is the citizenry crying out for a reform of the way government works? Are, are policymakers thinking about it? Are academics coming up with ideas for how the structure of government should change? Yeah, well, the constitution has been under a lot of pressure these days because it provides the government with a toolkit that is quite, quite powerful in terms how, of how it can enact its policies without much obstacles. I mean, constitutional reform is something that comes back to the fore every two or three years in France, ever since the last big amendment that was brought uh, to it in uh, 2008. So um, the, main, the main thing, actually, that people are talking about is how to improve the participation of the citizenry, of the French citizens, in shaping policies that will be enacted. And there have been attempts to improve this participation. Macron has set up two citizens' assemblies selected through sortition, one on the environment, the other on assisted dying, which actually... But nothing big comes out of it. I mean, you've got these assemblies, everybody talks about it, they do a lot of work, they are very great, but at the end of the, at the, end of the day, they have no... They're seen as talking shops, mere talking shops, are they? That's how they are perceived. Obviously, they, they bring a great deal in terms of, of informing the public opinion on uh, making it move to some extent, but in terms of its concrete, immediate consequences, they are close to nil. So... Should a constitutional reform be made so that um, the citizenry can participate participate more extensively to uh, in in policy making? Maybe, but I do not see that coming soon, since the French constitution is very hard to amend. Both uh, chambers of parliament, both houses of parliament, have a some kind of a veto right over constitutional reform, and especially the Senate, which is not on the same side of the president right now. During his first mandate, Macron uh, uh, tried to, uh, uh, to, to bring ambitious constitutional reforms, 
twice, actually, and twice it was crushed by the threat of the Senate's veto. So the French constitution is hard to amend, and no real change will be uh, made without reforming it. So I do not see it coming quite soon, but I could be wrong. Louis, what's your take on, on France and the UK too? Uh, whether there is likely to be any movement here or whether these are ideas that are just floating around academia and around some uh, opposition politicians but uh, are not going anywhere. What's a distinguishing element of French and British cause for devolution in France? I'd, I'd argue decentralisation, the principle of it, is more consensual among politicians. Uh, uh, government opposition... Um, left, right, there is this common agreement that decentralisation is a good thing. In the UK, though, that hasn't been the case. And we see in the history of British slash English devolution, a lot of hesitation. Uh, uh, Labour, for example, with the Metropolitan Councils that had been abolished just afterwards by the Conservatives. However, I think something is changing in British politics. And it's interesting to see that levelling up as a slogan is also being picked up by Labour combined authorities have been created under Tony uh, under sorry under Gordon Brown under new labor have seen expanded powers under the conservatives so there is that change in british politics as far as french politics is concerned it is indeed really difficult to change the constitution and that might be why macron is so keen on making alliances with local politicians is to get that support within the senate but also what's interesting as well is when we look at the Gilets Jaunes, the protesters had a lot of different demands. However, one thing that stood out was the call for the RIC, the Référendum d'Initiative Citoyenne or, or, or Citizens' Initiative Referendum. The RIC was basically one of the big arguments of the Gilets Jaunes, one of their main demands, and that is a call for more participation in policymaking, for more control over the institutions, the govern French politics. Um, and that idea of a RIC has been picked up by different politicians uh, um, within the far right, uh, within the, the, the large left-wing coalition we, we see now. So is it likely? In England, it is, I think. It is likely we will see a lot of changes because something is happening between the Conservatives and Labour. In France, well, I guess it all depends on the results of the next election. <laughs> Mike, just bring us to a close by telling us where you think the more radical change is likely and maybe whether there are ideas outside these two countries around the world that they should be looking to as examples. You know, reflecting on the conversation, it's interesting, these, what we've identified are almost two different tools that governments have turned to use as they face these pressures that we're, we're talking about in terms of ungovernability. So one is, do you tackle the structures of government and pass some more power and responsibility and energy down the line, down the chain? Or do you use the tools that Mathieu was talking about, which is which a number of governments have got interested in, trying to engage citizens very directly through these kind of new emerging techniques, citizens' assemblies and so on. And I mean, in a way, you can see them as both different kinds of attempts to sort of engage citizens differently and to understand them better, but also, I think, to try to address the growing desire for voice and for recognition, which I think is so much uh, central to sort of democratic politics. And I think if you think of those two approaches then sure, I mean, it really makes sense to look at a lot of different countries that have tried both. Many people in the UK look to Germany 
and think that the answer is that we become, you know, we turn ourselves somehow into a federal model of the German kind. And I think that kind of impulse was perhaps understandable. It's born of frustration at different aspects of British institutions and culture. I mean, I think what it often neglects is that that would be a wholesale transformation of pretty much everything. That would be a very radical leap in a different direction. And if you look at history, it tends to suggest that countries take that leap only or nearly always only at moments of intense crisis when they've been invaded, when they've experienced a violent civil conflict internally. And that's not where we're at in these these contexts. Yes, they're becoming harder to govern, perhaps, but neither are quite, quite at the point of sufficient crisis, I think, to really embrace a very radical model at the moment. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode. Thanks to Louis Bactash and Mike Kenny from the Bennett Institute and Mathieu Carpentier from the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. Let us know what you think of this latest episode of Season 2 of Crossing Channels. You can contact us via Twitter. The Bennett Institute is at Bennett Inst. The Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse is IAS Toulouse. And I am Ruskin147. If you enjoyed this episode, then do listen to our other Crossing Channels editions, notably our recent one on the hype around emerging technologies. And please join us next month for the next edition, where we'll be looking at religion. Religion.